0: John Palfrey, finally. This is finally the podcast from Michael Furtick. I'm joined today by an august personage, John Palfrey. I learned in researching this, I've known John for many years, but I learned in researching this that he's in fact also known as John Palfrey the Seventh. This is my first encounter with the Seventh, uh, at least knowing that I'm talking with the Seventh. Um, But I've known him many years as John. He carries the title now of President of the MacArthur Foundation, which is important. It's important, Um, jumping off point for a later discussion. The MacArthur Foundation is probably known to you. It's probably known to you because it is the grant-making organization that gives the Genius Grants, the so-called Genius Grants, which uh, celebrate uh, special human achievement. But also, the MacArthur Foundation gives over a quarter billion dollars of grants and investments per year, in a variety of fields, and I understand they range from climate change to reducing jail population, nuclear threat, uh, journalism, and so forth, and John will tell us more. John is a graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law School, where he also was a professor later, as well as Cambridge University, and in between his time at Harvard and his role now at the MacArthur Foundation in Chicago, he was the head of school at Andover, which is one of the best high schools in the multiverse. <laughs> um, John Palfrey, welcome.
1: Michael Furtick, nice to be with you and to follow some of the people you've had on this podcast. It's a great honor to be with you and to follow them too.
0: Thank you. Um, would you like to, to amend, I always give my guests an opportunity to amend, correct, um, edit, add whatever you might like to the, to the biographical summary that I gave you.
1: <laughs> You're so nice. No, I think that's all fine. And, uh, you know, the, I suppose the sum title of any human sum total is, uh, probably includes some human relations and family and all the rest, but certainly from a professional perspective, that all sounds good.
0: Well, let's tell, tell us about that. I, I met your, I got to know a little bit, your wife, Catherine, many years ago and, and you have kids. Would you like to tell us about them?
1: Sure. We have two great kids, Jack and Emmeline. And, um, I'm glad to say my parents are also, uh, uh, doing great and living on Cape Cod, they were also uh, academic pediatricians and professors uh, during their life, and um, that's always a part of I think wherever we come from is uh, is following, following our parents and and trying to to make the world a better place in, in ways that uh, you know would would inspire them too.
0: Well, since you brought up your kids, how old are they now? May I ask? Eighteen and twenty one in our kids' case. And and are they um, also aspiring to lives that will improve the lives of others, uh, as their parents uh, have, and as your parents have, and undoubtedly I Catherine's hope. parents have?
1: I think we won't have done a good job of parents if that's not so. And and I certainly think they're well on track. But, okay. I, but as as I think as many parents do, it's it's uh, important not to not to script their lives too much either.
0: Okay. John Palfrey, what ails America? Michael
1: Furtick, whoa, a lot. That that is a big question. You know, I, I am very focused at the moment on the state of our democracy and in in, uh, in its many dimensions. Um, one way to answer that question, there's quite an interesting effort that we're part of called More Perfect. I don't know if you've seen this, but it's a bipartisan effort led by um, uh, people like John Bridgeland, who was the George W. Bush uh, domestic policy advisor, and Melody Barnes, who was domestic policy advisor for President Obama and others um, trying to look at the things that ail America uh, and its democracy and try to address them. And they range from things like um, uh, the election integrity process, as well as, you know, ensuring that people get to the polls and and can vote to uh, civic education and the need to uh, have people step into the democratic process more actively than we do um, and and the part that I'm most focused on is is ensuring that we have good news and information in our communities and that we don't have uh, increasing polarization so anyway there are a lot of things that ail America but'm I'm, I'm interested in uh, the the cluster of things uh, that that speak to what we need to do to, to shore up our democracy and have a stronger one for those same kids and and ultimately grandkids
0: okay so let, let me invoke history and ask if now is different from the past, in fact, or are we in a time when we imagine now to be different? Um, So let's pick up on the concept of election integrity. Um, You are a student of history. You know well that um, the lore is, and there's a certain conventional acceptance, at least of a question about it, that John F. Kennedy's election for for his first election to to the presidency was um, perhaps subject to some irregularities, for example, in the state of West Virginia. Um, And and we could could pick up, not every decade, but we could pick up reasonably well-known examples to students of American history of questions about election integrity in the past. Are we in a moment now that strikes you as special, unique, different, differently dangerous um, is it, uh, is it differently dangerous if so, because of something called the internet or Russians or something, um, or is, was it ever thus? And we just simply have to maintain the walls of the citadel yet again, um, teach us something and what's your perspective?
1: Well, it's a, it's a great point and it's crucial, I think, for us to remember, uh, our history and, and United States history has, um, so many great stories. It does not, repeat <laughs> this rhyme, as you, as you know, um, and so, no, I mean, certainly we've had concerns about the integrity of elections dating back to our first ones. Um, and and even before we were a republic, um, no doubt there have been, uh, you know, concerns about our, our democracy, such as it is. Um, so, you know, from the 18th century to today, there certainly have been um, irregularities in elections ranging from the buying of votes to, you know, contested elections and so forth. I think what may be a couple of things are different about this one, not, you know, I think this is a unique time. And I use that word advisedly um, in a couple of ways. One is, you know, for those of us who are um, ballpark age 50, just to um, sort of situate us in time, you know, none of the things that um, we have encountered have looked like this, right? So it has been a little bit, you kind of grew up in a sense that there were threats in the world, a nuclear threat, and there was, you know, threat of uh, of war of various sorts and so forth. But, but the idea that democracy wasn't the best system and wasn't actually going to hold up election to election, that wasn't something you grew up, let's say in the 80s and 90s, worrying too, too much about. Um, and, you know, and now I think after January 6th, as an example, there is a sense that, well, you know, it is possible that somebody gets elected and, you know, that person doesn't end up taking office, or the, the kinds of things that were literally unthinkable. So I think that I think one may be sort of a generational um, sense. Um, you know, two. I think you're right about the internet, which is to say that um, the way in which we get information is so so different. And I'm sure we'll get to this, but you know, the erosion of the local news provision, the erosion of the newspaper, um, the the extent to which we don't actually share a sense of facts across communities. You know, I do think that is that is at least uh, different in this century. So, I mean, well, I mean, the Internet itself, of course, is new. But but, you know, even if you look all the way back to the pamphleteers at the end of the 18th century, you know, I still think we we may be more bifurcated uh, now. So I don't know. the mm. fact Is it as bad as the Civil War? Like we could go and argue different points, but but it's complicated and it's bad and it's got some. It's, loose-
0: a, it's about as bad as it's gotten anyway, yep. is your, is your right. view. Right. This yeah, is this true. is this is leveling up to about as bad as it's ever been.
1: Yes, right. I mean, uh, maybe let's call our, our worst moment 1861 or whatever like that. That may sure, be easily. But short of that, yeah, I mean, in terms of the threat level, I think it's pretty high.
0: Is democracy compatible with the Internet?
1: You know, I've thought from the start that it is and should be. You know, the the, the initial instinct around the, the Internet, um, when it became a mass market phenomenon which is to say in the the mid to late 90s i think the idea was in fact that that it could be a force for democracy that that right. more people you know could have a show like this without you know owning a radio station just as a specific example and that that would itself be a good thing that that particularly in authoritarian regimes that would be helpful to get word out where the state controlled the press and so forth and that hasn't really turned out to be the way the internet has worked, and it's not to say it hasn't. This podcast exists. You know there sure. are podcasts uh, and um, and outreach in uh, in authoritarian regimes, but it has turned out to be more effective, probably for the tyrants than for the those who favor democracy. Um, and that's that's in some ways our own fault because I think it's how we've created or shaped or regulated or not regulated the the space. So I don't exactly blame the technology, but I do think we're in a place where. Uh, democracy has not been helped by the technology, even Mm -hmm. though it might've been.
0: So you just said something very tantalizing. Um, You are many things, but one of the things you are is an expert in, let's call it regulation of the internet, speech in the internet, let's say certainly copyright and IP in the internet, generational change in the internet. Um, You just teased a concept of poor regulation or mismanaged planning or, or poorly thought out something about how the internet could have been and might have been and might perhaps still be. Can you pick up on that a little bit and, and tell us one or two signal examples that were sort of moments of failure, or at least themes that could have been uh, organized the other way or addressed another way? Sure. And, you know, I think it's playing with, with, with impact, or... with impact on
1: democracy and election. Yeah, I can come back around to that. I mean, and it's playing out very specifically today around regulation of artificial intelligence, um, which is you know the latest in the salvos of this discussion. But you know, I think the the uh, let's set aside the early days of the internet, you know, ARPANET and the, the government kind of funding early research networks in the sixties and seventies. But fast forward again to that period in the, in the 1990s when internet is becoming a mass market phenomenon and a decision is made um, bipartisan, by the way. So this was the Clinton administration, as well as um, Republicans then in the U S that, that the approach should be hands off the internet that um, uh, what was then called a cyber libertarian approach may still be um, was the way to go. And we should allow a thousand flowers to bloom and the two, the, have the technology be able to grow without any regulation or virtually no regulation uh, would be would be desirable, and that's more or less what we've done. Um, so that's sort of signal moment number one, is in the late uh, mid to late nineteen nineties. You know, there have been points along the way where we could have constrained it in various ways. So if the first is sort of an open internet, then you've got social media. Um, We decide to treat most of the social media uh, companies the same way um, in a hands-off fashion, more or less. And they're regulated even less than other other companies. So there there are certain things which, you know, as a lawyer, you know, the the ability to sue a company um, that is uh, not a social media company exists in one way. And if you are a social media company uh, or a technology platform, um, you are exempt from, from certain lawsuits. You know, that has resulted in no small part in the United States having the biggest technology companies, the world trillion dollar companies. Um, That was that's a series of decisions we made along the way. How does that come back around? Well, you know, part of it is that if you have a literally unfettered space and you have the First Amendment and various other things that we have in the United States, I think that has led to a form of polarization that has drawn people uh, apart and Mm. communities.
0: And so what could have what could have been some kind of common carrier Provision that required the the stream on your social media platform of choice to include different viewpoints. What what might have been? Just brainstorm us through a couple of examples of what we might be inspired to consider as remedies or alternative histories. Well, you know, you, you're referring to
1: one set of ideas that we've tried at different points, um, often known as the fairness doctrine. Um, a a way to create some kind of balance which we've done in the in the television era that that is not the law of the land today but it's been it's been tried in various ways that tries to ensure some balanced diet if you will in terms of what we get uh through the internet um and there, you know, a number of scholars, including Martha Minow, you've had on on this yeah. podcast, who's uh, talked about that kind of idea. Um, you know, part of it is uh, is ensuring that the technology companies actually pay for the news, and some of which they're actually using. So, there are a number of proposals to say, how do you ensure that the effect of the technology companies is not simply to siphon away all the ad revenue more or less, which is what's happened and hollow out the local media providers or the newspapers. That is absolutely. So that's another approach. So there are a handful of moves like that that we could make that would not be particularly hard and other countries have. So on the second one, Australia and Canada have tried versions of that. And and certainly um, uh, the European Union has done much more regulation. We have basically just said hands off the big tech companies and, and that's had the effect that it's had.
0: So, so far, as we talk about the compatibility of democracy and the internet, we have located the conversation in what you have observed as the polarization of the American political dis- discussion or people. So that we're not, we're in sort of our own echo chambers, we're not inclined to listen to the other gal, the other guy. And not only that, we're not exposed naturally. Um, the way we would have been in the era of three channels, NBC, CBS, ABC, maybe 10 channels, whatever, to the other person's point of view, or at least to a centralizing, maybe neutralizing point of view. And so we are uh, echo chambering. And then those echo chambers have their own eddies and pools that seem to skirt ever outward um, into uh, authoritarian right or authoritarian left or conspiratorial left or conspiratorial right where suddenly the goalposts have been moved so far that truth itself or that um, facticity, um, the find out ability of certain things as true or false is no longer uh, possible and is constantly up for grabs. So that's the polarization. Do I characterize it well, roughly? Because I'm getting to another point. Is that roughly about right? perfect. Okay. Okay, so what about the actual mechanics of elections? Um, for example, so we're 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 moving to a time when more and more ballots in the United States are available remotely or by mail or whatever else you might have, uh, such that ballots can be cast over a period of weeks. Still, the election day itself—that that Tuesday, as is our tradition ensconced in our most sacred forms of law in America—that Tuesday is uh, extremely important turnouts extremely important, and we have um, a history that is now kind of cute of discussing the so-called October surprise in major elections when such and such candidate suddenly appears with the the DWI thingy from the other candidate or they, the other they have a Ill, illegitimate child or something like this or or something more politically or policy oriented, but there's this kind of October surprise. In the days of the big iron, the big machine, the mainstream media, there might be 10 places you might source the, you might find or come across the, the the surprise, but then also the reaction to that surprise, the corrective to that surprise, the clarification of that surprise. Do you think in the era of possible Russian interference in social media, in TikTok and whatever it may be, there is enough time between the very early November surprise <laughs> that I've now made up um, the new version of the, 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 9am surprise, right. Um, and the corrective moment to actually have the, the truth out enough that the, the marginal voter will, will vote in an informed way that he or she might not have voted, but for the corrective. Or do you think that the time to correction is now so compressed because of the internet? Um, and it's so hard to do it that the surprise may actually be more powerful.
1: Such a good uh, and complicated thought. You know, it, it reminds me of how much I love Election Day. It's my favorite day of the year, you know, going out and you know, <laughs> casting ballot and putting a little sticker on to say I voted and, you know, and okay. hopping in the bus and going to work. Like So I, I to- there's a nostalgia, I think, that many of us have for that form of civic engagement. And, you know, I, just starting at the top, I'm I'm struck by the fact that we have, I think it was forty four percent of people who could have voted in the last election didn't, you know, the fact that we're, you know, not quite half but close to half of Americans, despite how many people have died for the right to do this and so forth, don't don't exercise that right. And so I think we've got, and
0: that was a that was a stellar turnout, and right. it was it wasn't twenty
1: twenty that that number I think was the highest in, in uh, you know generation. So in any event, um, I, I think there's a there's sort of a threshold issue, which is um, getting people to vote. Period. Um, you know those who don't typically vote in a, in a, even a presidential year. And then you look at municipal elections, there there are municipal elections for mayors that have single digit turnouts, right. in in number of the the cities in Texas in particular. While we're
0: at it, we might ask a question about the Iowa caucus. Who knows? Maybe. (laughs) How does that work? (laughs) I'm not positive
1: that we have a great working representative democracy in, in some fundamental ways, but. Okay. um, okay, Okay. So even with, so now we're talking about within the zone of people who do, uh, decide to vote. Um, you know, could they be? Uh, could they have their uh, um, their vote torqued? And and I think the short answer is it is more complicated than it's ever been, and requires a different level of um, sort of understanding of how the information flows work. I think it could cut in multiple directions. I mean, certainly Russian interference, um, you know, potential Chinese interference through TikTok, and otherwise, those are um, those are real concerns. I also wonder a, a scenario you didn't quite describe, but. Mm. I worry a lot about micro-targeting, which of course is um, increasingly possible, plus the use of AI that could allow a nefarious actor in the very last hours um, you know, before an election, whatever your, your 9 a.m. surprise is the, the day before or whatever the day. Um, of the uh, turnout to target, let's just call it some vulnerable populations that uh, might or might not be likely to vote, and, and put put out something about, say, a candidate's age or something they said the day before—a total false deepfake, right. really micro target and effective. And whether that's coming from Russia, or it's coming from within, or it's coming from wherever, you know, that that uh, ability is increasingly, you know, fairly straightforward with the technology. Um, you know, hard to recover, right, from that. How do you know that the person got that deepfake? How do you know that the person mm. got? That you know that that disinformation at that last moment. So I think there are a number of variations.
0: And, and if you're hitting only ten thousand people, let's say in Michigan, R- correct, re- right, right, which is a which is a pivotal state at any kind of national election. How how might the observers who are who conceive of themselves as neutral observers, the forces for something called good, right? Neither left now nor right, just trying to get the truth out. How could they even these 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 observers? even discover this micro-targeting because it was so so micro-targeted to that that population of just a few thousand people.
1: Right. This is one of one of a handful of fears I have about about this particular cycle. Others don't share this fear. I don't think it's practical. But you know, I think it's it is exactly as you say. How would you know it happened, even if you could counter that misinformation in a timely way. You know, there there are a handful of things that can be done. Uh, one is uh, called prebunking; that that people are less likely to believe a myth that they've been uh, shared if they have already been sort of inoculated against that. There are you know a variety of things that you can do, but still, um, you know, very 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 tricky. Um, you know, I think your your point no, about notoriously
0: people- notoriously dictators are extraordinarily good at inoculating people against dis- disbelief, right? So
1: correct, yeah. <laughs> It's so a, a long, long used strategy by many. That's the concept of the liar's dividend. I'm sure you know where if you tell somebody, you know, this, this, you know, big lie and that somebody's going to um, come along and, and tell you that it's not true. And then when the media in that case tells you that the thing um, hmm. was not true, then you said, look, they, they were, you know, out to get you me off. They actually get a bump from that. The liar's <laughs> dividend is, is real. So exactly. It's a, it can cut both ways. So I think a real challenge. And I don't, I don't have a simple answer to it. The the only thing I'd say is that, that one of the facts you shared might cut in the other direction, which is Uh the, the uh, mail-in about the the fact that some of them might be cast a month before, right. That, that would, um, uh, would undercut the ability of the the 9am surprise for actually having all that much effect. Right. So um, I actually think on some level, it could be a huge positive. So let's,
0: let's, so let's be brave. So I agree that the mail-in ballot is an antidote accidentally, yeah, uh, not, not like, intended to be right. Not yeah. intended to be. It's to yeah. the nine a.m. surprise, right? You, if you, if you've, if you've, if you've mailed in your ballot a month earlier, well, then you're not affected by it. But let's let's just build on for a second. Do you do you think that the election mechanics ought to be reviewed now uh, in the twenty first century? The election mechanics that were developed in the eighteenth century ought to be subject to review. Do you think there should be multiple rounds of voting? Uh, do you think that there should be um, never mind other mechanisms of voting, sort of first past the post yeah. or, or whatever. But do you think there ought to be multiple rounds of voting or extended periods, or do you think that just turns people off further to their elections? Oh, I think we are way overdue for a, a huge scrub of our election mechanics.
1: Oh, you are, you do, okay. Oh, yeah. I, I think it's very hard to do. You know, people like Lawrence Lessig have been um, jumping up and down about this, whether it's a constitutional convention through to, you know, more specific um uh, types of reforms. I'm very. By the way, I think citizen assemblies are very uh, powerful ideas. As as an example, um, so I think there are so many things that that we could do by really thinking deeply about what our democracy ought to look like and how to how to ensure you know fair, fair and safe elections. And and I don't think we do a particularly good job of that in in let's call it 2024 America.
0: Do you do you think an Article Five convention on whatever set of subjects is a good idea and do you think it is a likely event in your lifetime?
1: So on number two, vanishingly unlikely, Um, you know, we haven't amended the constitution in some time and, and there's some, uh, there there are reasons to believe that would be quite hard to pull off right now. On number one, I think it could be, you know, it certainly could be, and let's just say that we had a, a fully functioning democracy in which a group of humans could talk to one another rationally and actually examine facts and and really be serious about the the fate of our republic. Yeah, I mean, of course, I think it would be a good idea and and we should do it. Um, do I think that is uh, plausible right now? You know, I look at the the extent to which the you know Congress and I'm not saying this in a partisan way specifically, although obviously there's a party ruling Congress. But what they can't get done right now, like just looking at where where we stand um and how far how far apart the country is that you know half of us think that somebody who is you know um, potentially you know or alleged to have committed 91 counts of um you know criminal acts should possibly be president like we could not be further apart right now and so mm-hmm. we're trying to bring people together and think about that as a um uh you know as a reform mechanism seems to me uh not a great idea at this moment but but should we do it in our lifetimes of course we should
0: Okay. we should it is a good idea okay um there are there are some there are some uh, just for our listeners, and you'll 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 be ok with, with this for sure, John. Uh, there are some statutory provisions that are making their way through various uh, state houses and state legislatures that are conditional upon they they, they they they're conditional upon the some other event taking place. For example, uh, in the this the most recent famous example was in the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Certain statutes that were in more conservative states, came into effect um, after the overturning of Roe v. Wade, uh, banning abortions in all but uh, a few cases. And there are equivalent um, efforts underway to amend the Constitution, such as you know, such that if so many states, after so many so many times so many uh, years, uh, pass similar or identical measures, then in, they they will sort of all come into force at once. And that will have the effect at the three quarters threshold of ratifying the constitutional amendment as well. So I, there are there are mechanisms, but the, the the most tantalizing one is the Article Five convention, isn't it? It's, it is a thrilling idea.
1: <laughs> you know, you, you like to think it's possible, and, and we have, I think, a few dozen times managed to amend the constitution. Last time I checked, so it's not it is not impossible in American history. Back to your earlier point, but it just feels remote right now that we could actually do that. Well,
0: okay. So let's let's wade into a topic that I think we can call you an expert on. I think, you know, you, you up sit, you sit atop a, a foundation that does many things across many fields and you've also worked in higher education and we'll get to secondary education as well. I hope if the time allows, but what, is there a crisis now in American higher education? We're, we're talking in February of 2024. We've just seen, Uh, Some university presidents move on uh, or get moved on. Um, We've seen uh, donor revolts. We've seen um, uh, resistance uh, uh, to donor input um, and rejection of donor input as invasive and presumptuous uh, by, by some professors or at least some administrators. Is there a crisis in American higher education, and if so, of what nature is it? Of what making is it? Or is this not a crisis, and are we just in a moment of high temper?
1: Well, certainly, is a, a moment of high temper. You know, I, I would again back up a little bit and just remind us: you know, the American higher education system—not so much the. Lower education system, but higher education is the has been the envy of the world for you know certainly a hundred years if not more. Um, we have an extraordinary system. It is it is a remarkable thing, ranging from you know community colleges through the most elite universities, r one universities, uh, and you know and it does a lot of good. So I I am I I just remind us that the, the form of excellence that we've had certainly is in, I, I mean, I think crisis is safe to say, um, one is a crisis of how it's perceived. And I think that's of its own making, right? To the extent that um, particularly the most elite universities have um, in some ways um, conveyed that they are apart and separate and, you know, better than or whatever. And I think that's a, that's always a mistake, um, particularly in a democratic system. I think uh, that their, the extent to which the, uh, Big universities have not been as connected to their their communities in you know in a deep and, and uh, honest way, which sometimes means you know do you actually reflect the whole of the community? Sometimes are you a good neighbor? Any number of things like that that I think that uh, that universities could do much better at. But I also think universities haven't made their own case, especially well, um, particularly in these last few months. I mean, in the there have been terrible, terrible challenges, um, particularly the um, challenges of uh, anti semitism on campus as well as Islamophobia and so forth, and the clash. Of of, um, of different perspectives, so universities haven't done themselves a favor there. But they also, I don't think, have made um, made a particularly good case for themselves. And, and
0: you were talking why about why not? Why not? These are these are very very smart people, um, and these are people you come into contact with in in one form or another, one way or another, one manner or another, constantly. I'm sure. So you, not, I'm not asking you to name name or reveal any confidences. What I'm just saying is, from your vantage point, having worked closely and at arm's length with so many such people, institutional people, as an institutional man yourself, how is it that so many extraordinarily talented students of human nature, (laughs) uh, people too with kids and dogs and fish and golf clubs and, you know, bad piano practice and all these things, how is it that these people have missed the mark so consistently and thoroughly? What happens inside the bowels of these institutions to make that possible how does it go wrong so thoroughly and so consistently and then how does that well before we get how does it fix how does it go wrong like what happens you know, tr- truly, I don't know the answer. And I, I think if <laughs> That's I did, a long-winded question. I was oh, hoping for some kind of answer.
1: Yeah. So one one short answer is maybe too many golf clubs and too few fishing rods and too few pickup trucks, right? I mean, in, in one sense. But tell
0: us more about that. What do you mean? I think well, I know what you mean, but say, say it more plainly.
1: You know, I think, I think to the extent that big universities, uh, the most elite universities are perceived to be, you know, country club-ish and to the extent that they are political are certainly far to the left, you know, One of the things I have truly struggled with, both as an administrator of a school and and as a colleague, is, you know, we don't have that many people who are not signed up as Democrats, you know, in most of these elite institutions on the teaching faculty. Right. uh, There's that's empirically able to be shown, you know, I think to the extent that they then are perceived to be political actors by virtue of having such a such a huge tilt in one direction and accused of indoctrination and so forth that, you know, I think that's that looks a lot more like golf clubs it looks like fishing rods and pickup trucks and what you know, mm-hmm. short form of um, representing the whole country. So that's, you know, I think that's a, a legitimate uh, um, uh, question. Um, I, I think a second one, though, is particularly those that have the most money. Mm. I think the practice has been to be sort of insular, where as long as you have the big donors continuing to support you and you have, you know, tens of billions of dollars in an endowment, it doesn't really much matter what the New York Post yeah. says about you. Right. It 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 just doesn't. Um, and you can kind of put your head down and just do your work. And, you know, I think the the positive side of something you said earlier, which is not having donor interference, not having outside influence you know, strikes me as right. I mean, it's obviously essential that you have uh, a, a group of people in a democracy who are not swayed by those, those contributions and those, the, that support. Now, what happened, obviously, was you had a revolt this fall, which combined donors and the public and the Congress and you know, leading members of Congress anyway, um, you know, coming after universities. And all of a sudden, that sort of deck and cover approach, um, the insular don't have comments, etc. You know that just that didn't work, um, and and in some ways I think a dam broke that will have to be you know rebuilt in some ways.
0: Does does I agree with you that the wealthiest universities seem most prepared to survive this moment and return to business as usual if they want to, and they're best positioned to do so. But there are only a few universities in the United States that have that level of wealth already. And by the way, even they, I've gotten to know some of the people involved in the management of of these places that you know more than I do. Even they are worried about losing donation streams because they they seem to have an endless ability to spend uh, beyond their enormous means. But setting aside that that cadre of maybe it's maybe it's five maybe it's 15 universities that are that wealthy is there hope for american higher education whether it's a perception problem or a substantive problem where it's a you know very demonstrably politically skewed problem if that's a problem is there hope in the in the the you know universities 6 through 200 or 16 through 500 which which may be more susceptible of change, may be more interested in the feedback, may be more accustomed to adapting? Or is the problem different and other from what has been described in the public discourse? Is the problem, for example, that universities used to, maybe in my time, maybe in your time, maybe before us both, uh, be a place where you'd have a, a place to hang your hat and then go to school and maybe play pickup basketball afterwards to get some exercise. And now they are like resorts. They're hospitality institutions with lifestyle administrators who are involved in every part of your customer experience. (laughs) Um, And is that problem sort of different from the political problem that we're describing, is it additional to, is it separate from, is it in fact the actual problem, is there hope on the horizon or does it, does it all sort of really worry you and that this, this prized place that American higher education has had for, as you say, at least 100 years, since higher, since higher education became a thing, really, um, is it at risk?
1: I think it is at risk, you know. I, I and I certainly worry about those things too. I might reframe a little bit because I do think that for, let's just Great. say, half of the college-age students who are enrolled in college in America, roughly speaking, are enrolled in a community college or two-year institution of some Great. sort. And I think Great. those may be a little bit closer to what you're describing. It's an experience where, yes, you go get some classes and credentials, but you've got another job, you're struggling to Make your rent. Maybe you get to play some pickup basketball on the side, but certainly, certainly no concierge experience. Um, you know, and that's at least half of our, our our students. And you know, I think some of those institutions, particularly, I would think about um, uh, city colleges and places like uh, Chicago and, and New York that I know a little bit. You know, these are amazingly important institutions and doing you know a different kind of crucial work. Um, so I think that's that's one one reframe. Um, and and to your point, I, I think that within the as you go up this sort of wealthier or elite um, stack and very ways. I think a lot of mistakes um, have been made by a lot of people and in, in, in terms of what what's important for a variety of reasons and a reset is necessary, a reset around how we think about inclusion and speech and a variety of things that, that I think are, are tricky but are are you know go to the central core of what it means means to educate or be educated or to learn. Um, and and I'm hoping that a next generation of college university presidents, again, ranging across the entire board, you know, we'll figure out together how to do that reset well. And, and, you know, obviously there are some who are sitting now who are doing a great job of it. And there are others who need to be the next generation uh, to help make that make that occur.
0: Wave a wand, John. Is there something that you wish were true specifically? And you don't have to answer that is not true now. You're allowed to wave a wand in this magical podcast moment that we're in. Is there something you wish were true?
1: Well, you know, I I, I was, uh, I'm a visiting professor in the winter term last few years at, at Harvard Law School and um, got to teach my uh, class January 2nd to 17th, which included the day in which unfortunately uh, Claudine Gay resigned her presidency. And I, I got to meet with a number of the students uh, who were in my 80 person class and without betraying any confidences, um, there was one small group conversation, a group of 10 students or so. You know, and and a a woman who is Jewish said, I wish I could walk across the campus with my Star of David necklace, but I feel I can't do that, or wear a uh, yarmulke, someone else uh, could have said. Um, And then a student who, um, uh, Muslim, said, I can't join the um, Islamic Law Society because I'll never get a job if it's perceived that I'm a member of this group. And then a, a black woman said, I wish I could have a black woman president at Harvard. And When I had that conversation and heard each of them in the same room, in the same table, my wish at that moment was that each of those students could have that basic thing that they were looking for. That strikes me as what inclusion actually would be, right? Is that no one of those three students would have to say that thing. And somehow we've gotten to a place, this is not Harvard bashing, this is just, you know, thinking about our, our society is that in none of those cases is that person happy as a student being in that educational institution. It's 180 degrees where we need to be.
0: Right, so, so let me press, press the case. If I could invite you to wave your wand to choose to make a change of one thing that could lead to such a happier future, is there something that has gone wrong that you can identify, that you can mention, or something that has not yet gone right that you could add to our Harvard or our name it place that ought to be different? that you think would increase the chance that the, that happier future that you've described, with those three students would be, be able to realize their dreams and see their dreams realized?
1: Honestly, I think it's more culture than any rule, right? It's And, and that's why it's so tricky, right? If the answer were simply, there were a different rule about free speech or a different rule about, you know, whatever, a particular form of um, discrimination or otherwise, every institution would have done it. It's just not that easy, right? It is actually a shift, a cultural shift that says, the approach to inclusion is honestly going to be, say, regardless of your religion, coming to the school, you're going to be here and honored, and that, and that you know you are going to be able to be here alongside other people of other backgrounds and religions, and that you're going to at least have a likely feeling of, maybe not 100% of the time, 100% of the people, but inclusion and belonging. That that form of respect, that form of dignity is something that I would love to wave a wand and do, but it is not done through rule changes. It is done through culture
0: change. Was there, was there a time when that cultural, well, we won't say Nirvana, but that cultural better time, the cultural better version did obtain more. Have we, have we, have we moved away from it? Have we lost something from say 10 years ago or 20 years ago? Or do you think we are just as far from that happier place as we have ever been just differently so
1: Well, we've never, you know, we've never truly included everybody in a, you know, an elite institution like a, you know, these, these top schools. So, so I think there's the important point that the, the nirvana of just saying it was 1950, you know, that's untrue, right? In terms
0: of who was welcome. Clearly untrue. It was not 1950. We know Uh, that, right? How about 1995?
1: (laughs) You know, I I think 1995, we maybe were better both in terms of who was welcome at the place and also how we talked to one another somehow. We need to figure out how to argue better, how to um, see one another as humans better. And, I, I, you know, look, I, I think there's a combination of things that have to happen to get to that place. And so have we had better moments? I'm sure we have. But has okay. it ever been ideal? No.
0: OK, so let us turn to secondary education, where, where you spent, uh, I think, at least directly, at least about about a decade, if I, if yeah, I yeah, uh, research well, as the head of Andover, head of school at Andover, which is a storied place um in case it matters um john went to exeter and not to Andover, uh which is just about as cute as it can be in this, in this particular case um so do you think that the the challenge the disease the the trouble that that higher education in america faces has also landed at high school Is it different? Is it worse? Is it getting worse? Is it getting better? Is it not as bad? Um, I'm not asking you to talk about Andover in particular. I'm asking you to talk about high schools. You, you sat on boards, you, you saw many high schools, you, you interacted with many heads of school. You still do. Um, Is the same problem facing secondary America, secondary school in America, or is it different? Is it worse, better?
1: Yeah, you know, very similar. Um, but of course, it's it's so crucial. And having taught both in in higher ed and, and high schools, to just remember the age difference between the students is um, is material. So the difference between teaching thirteen to eighteen year olds um, and teaching you know college students or or graduate students who are older is big. Um, but but I think many of those same uh, struggles are there. So um, the, the a book that I wrote while I was head of school um, at Andover was called Safe Spaces, Brave Spaces, and it was because I felt that we in our our own faculty discussions, our own community discussions, were, were saying you either had to be for free expression, which was identified with the right, uh, or on the left in favor of diversity, equity, inclusion, uh, obviously associated with the left. And my view, going back to our democracy point, is we actually have to have both. It's like having equality and liberty. Equality is we got to have everybody in the, you know, everybody's going to be treated the same and, and in the system. And liberty is that you have to be, have ability to you know, say your piece and wear your um, your religious garment or whatever it might be. The, that's a necessary condition of democracy. And pitting those two against one another and putting them in partisan categories, I think that's partly what we've done in higher ed as well as in in, in high school. So, yeah, I mean, I think that I think the those core issues of how we operate in twenty twenty four you know democratic spaces, educational spaces, are, are are pretty similar.
0: How long will it take? Let's say we're at Let's assume, for the purpose of the question, and you can correct the assumption, that we're at a kind of nadir, we're at a low point, um, maybe, a, maybe a local minimum, but we're at, we're at a bad time in secondary and higher education, let's say. How long will it take to, to get right, to heal it, to get back on track?
1: I love the notion that we're at an ADR and we can't go further down. So I'm going to accept that. I'm going to accept that premise. Um, well,
0: I, I, I think I think you're, you're sort of playing with the notion of a President Trump again. So, so yeah. you know, which, which could be a, a terrible disaster. But so setting that aside, just setting aside the, the political sphere for a second, which is yeah. difficult to set aside, The in the field of education itself, where you've lived much of your life, not all of it, um, where you have great influence still, where you think about a lot, you write on those topics. How, if, assuming that we've reached a ma- nadir, <laughs> perhaps an unsafe assumption, or assuming, or maybe not assuming we've reached it, how long will it take to get out of this valley?
1: Yeah. So fair enough. And whether the nadir is, you know, an eight or 10-year nadir or a two-year, I, I get the you're, right. your point. Right. um Right. a relatively low point. Right. Um, Uh, you know, again, I think the answer is cultural and that it's not, it's not based on a rule or a standard or something that we could, um, we could easily just fix. So I I think it is, you know, a half a generation maybe. I mean, I think it's the kind of thing that turns relatively slowly and is a, you know, is a broad set, you know, commitment. And, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm enough of an optimist and a believer in young people that they will help figure out something that this, you know, this is an anxious time and it doesn't feel settled. And we haven't we haven't set things up well for going back to, you know, our our kids age. So, you know, I I am hopeful that uh, as new leaders come onto the stage and there really is a is a reset that that it can be done better. That's not to be taken, you know, for granted by any means, but it's not a it's not a five year fix, I don't think.
0: Ding, 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 ding. That is not the sound of my voice. That is a real bell. So we're going to go into the famous speed round. Um, speed, speed round. Uh, change the tempo. Change the mood. John Palfrey, favorite pizza place? Oh, my gosh. Pinocchio's Pizza for sure. Harvard Square. Okay, excellent. The old Noakes. Which slice, please?
1: Uh, I just totally uh, plain cheese and not the um, Sicilian one. The, the one that's like a, looks like you a like. You have a triangle
0: plain pizza at Noakes? Totally. It's the way to go so good Ladies and gentlemen this is an incorrect answer this is the first <laughs> time that someone in the history of speed round has actually failed the question so good um, okay favorite indulgent snack food John Palfrey
1: oh my gosh you know I've been really like these little like um uh they're, these little corn um gosh I wish I could think of what they're called but they were like they look like popcorn but they're um they're uh, like a salty snack I just
0: awesome. found them at yeah, awesome at awesome. awesome uh name one movie you are not proud to love as much as you do
1: oh my gosh um I am definitely like action thriller in that whole zone, for sure. Um, I mean, Die Hard, you know, that kind of thing. Die right? Hard, great. <laughs>
0: okay, great, 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 great. I think, I think Al Gore's answer was The Matrix. The Matrix, um, the Matrix is pretty good. <laughs> will Donald Trump be convicted of any of the 91 criminal charges he is now facing? Oh, sure. Who will be president in
1: 2025? Oh, man. that I can't even – I can't even –
0: Okay, pass. Fine. Is uh, Chicago unlivably cold in the winter? No, no. Chicago's great. It's great. It is it is
1: cold. It is cold, but um, but it's it's fabulous. And you know, I I'm a four seasons person.
0: You are four seasons. Well, okay. They I understand Chicago says about they have winter and construction. That's what I've understood from them, Chicagoan. Uh you used to enjoy, if memory serves, with Catherine, your superb wife occasionally a meal at a kind of glorious restaurant. Um, Are there any particularly memorable ones?
1: That's so nice. You know, um, I had this uh, discussion with my son recently, which is that um, uh, he told me that Boston has no Michelin starred restaurants and and Chicago has like 30. I said, that's not possible. And he said, "No, no, no, it's, it's really true." Anyway, he turns out he was right, which is that Boston oh. though it has great restaurants. Does not Michelin doesn't even you know do it anyway. Back oh, to this one doesn't, I, interesting doesn't. <laughs> which I didn't know, but I found out from my my twenty one year old. Um, uh, but uh, no, you know, I think one recently here in Chicago, there is a um, uh, a uh, restaurant that I uh, we went to with our board called Taste Two 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 downtown, which was a fabulous experience. So anyway, that's a just a recent one, and there there are plenty of Chicago examples.
0: Great. And what are you reading now, John Mulvary? Wow, that is, that is such a good question.
1: Um, I am in, in a, <clears throat> have a, have a you know, big stack of things on, on my desk. Right now, I'm, I am focused on this question of, uh, of local news. Um, and literally, the, the last book that I flipped back through uh, was our mutual friend Martha Minow has a book called Saving the News. And the yeah, last we talked week, about it on this podcast. On podcast yeah, exactly. So there's show. one reason I'm plugging it. And though I had read it when it came out, she has a coda at the end um, in which she packs in a whole bunch of ideas of what could be done to save the news in America. And because we're trying to invest in this, I've just been uh, thinking through those ideas and others. Um, so that, that's been the, the the zone of my my reading recently.
0: I see behind you on a shelf um, something with the, is it a book or a collection of Maria Callas? Are you a... A fan of hers.
1: I am. I am for sure. Uh, you know, I, th- that's
0: 1950s a, Maria Callas Tosca, yeah. 1953.
1: Those are all CDs, actually, from uh, you know that collection that came out uh, remastered of of all of her uh, all of her performances there. There,
0: there was only me. one. There was only one. She has not yet been refound. Um, okay, so getting back to, we have a, a little bit more time. Getting back to a more serious discussion. Um, I think I basically have have one question left for you. Uh-huh which is what does it mean to be a liberal person in America today? Has that changed? And what is your view of that change? And by change, it's changed since, let's say, you were younger, you were a student, you were a high schooler, you were a graduate student, a similar thing at that age. In the last, say, 25 years, as you said, you're around 50, I think. Um, In the last 25 years, has there been a change in what it means to be a liberal person in America? And are you satisfied with that change?
1: You know, I, I'm, I think I'm satisfied with almost nothing that I experienced in America. I love America and I'm a very proud American. So it's not it's not that. But, but I, we're in a we're an anxious moment, an anxious time. And I think it's I think it's hard to be and embrace, you know, any and all labels, and you know, You know, there's obviously always the tension between are you talking about kind of a 19th century liberal? You're talking about a late 20th century liberal. There's there's all that. You tell
0: us. You tell me.
1: Well, no, I mean, I I, I struggle with with um, with those aspects of things. You know, let's go to free speech just as an example. Um, I think many people who perceive themselves as liberal Democrats, as a as an example, have been. you know, highly critical of free expression, you know, increasingly critical of free expression during this period. And as I mentioned, you know, sort of pitting it against diversity, you know, a classical liberal would not, would not make that move, right, would be trying to figure out how do we preserve a combination of, you know, why are these differences, why are these differences opinion so important? How do we figure out how to have, you know, better arguments? Um, you know, that would be something that would be a commitment of a late 19th century liberal, or closer to that model, um, it would not be a commitment of a 21st century. Um, let's just call it younger progressive um, these, these days. So you know, I, I disagree, right, with with pulling that out of the mix of things, because in part you see what happens when you put in power somebody who turns that back against you, right? It, it can always be turned back against you if you if you start to constrain, you know, the the ideas that you that you're able to explore, um, you know, within certain bounds. So that would just be one example that I think is um, that. I I, that I push back against. And, you know, I give credit to President Obama, who I think pushed back against that a number of people who would be in my category of sort of, um, the maybe trained the same way I was in, in that case. Um, but who, who really believe we need to argue better. We need to be able to express ideas and work them out, um, you know, in order to, to make a more perfect union.
0: Well, we came back to more perfect, which is good. That was a very good callback. Um, John Paul there's something else you'd like to add before we wrap up? My enduring gratitude, gratitude to you, Michael Fertick, a great uh,
1: lifelong friendship and also um, uh, impressed that you are doing Finally, and it's great. And thank you for including me in your, in your series.
0: Thank you very much. This has been an episode of Finally. Thank you for listening.